0: Scripture teaches that it is the responsibility of every believer priest to participate in the worship of giving. Giving is another aspect of worship, just as singing praises to God is, as well as studying the Word of God, giving thanks, prayer. All of these are part of our worship to the Lord. Worship essentially is the idea of giving obedience to the Lord, submitting our will to His will, recognizing His authority, His sovereignty. In our lives, in the New Testament scripture teaches that giving is not based on a system of tithing, which was a form of taxation in the Old Testament, but it's based on a free will offering concept, which was also found in the Old Testament. Scripture teaches that as every man purposeth or determines in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Will the men come forward to take up the offering? Father, we're indeed grateful for all that you have provided for us. We know that you will always provide that which we need to accomplish your will. Father, we thank you for these gifts. We thank you for those who are grace-oriented in their giving. And we give these as simply a token of our appreciation for all that you have provided for us in your immeasurable grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. Uh, ready to study the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and right relationship with Him that He may use what we teach to further our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this privilege to study Your Word, that in this nation we have the privilege of the freedom of worship that we are not interfered with by government authority, that there are men and women who have given their lives to preserve these freedoms that we may worship freely. Father, this is a tremendous and unique freedom in the history of mankind. Father, we thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have preserved your word, and that you have given us God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and teaches us that under his ministry we might grow and mature in our spiritual life. Our Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you might open our eyes to the uh, reasons and purposes for our spiritual life, our spiritual maturation process, and that you might give us a greater understanding of how we fit within the flow of the history of mankind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study in Revelation, and today we're bouncing out of the review section, although there is some review in today's message. It's by nature of the passage that we're looking at. We're moving forward into the next chapter in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And here we have... A command to John the Apostle to write to this next church in the cycle and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, quote, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Quote, This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead. This is simply the opening verse in this next uh, letter of evaluation to the Church at Sardis. We have the Church of Sardis, the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Laodicea to go. We studied four. We have three more to go. Now as we look at this, and just in the opening uh, verse, there are four things that need to be addressed for our understanding. First of all, it's addressed to the angel, the angel of the church in Sardis. What is is meant by this term angel? Second thing that we have to understand is the background. That's the second aspect. It's the angel that is connected to the church in Sardis. So we have to study the culture of Sardis. What do we know about its history, its background, its local customs, What, if anything, is said in contemporary literature of this time that might give us a greater ability to understand some of the things that are written in this section? Uh, That's one of the important aspects of Bible study is to know the culture. Otherwise, we may misidentify and misinterpret some of the things that are are said here. For example, when we get down to verse 5, we're going to get into one of those difficult passages that students of the word love to discuss and that is the verse that reads he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and i will not blot out his name from the book of life but i will confess his name before my father and before his angels and there are those who have taken that to mean that oops if you're not uh going forward in your Christian life or you commit some sins or you fail in some way then your name gets blotted out after you're saved and you can lose your salvation. Well that would violate uh, numerous passages within the word of God so it's obvious you don't lose your salvation. We do not advocate a a uh, daisy theology here. You know there's there's this classification of theology in terms of Calvinism as tulip and Arminianism as daisy theology. Uh, Calvinism, of course, is based on those five points, total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance. So you get the uh, acronym TULIP. See, they chose that because this was formulated at the Synod of Dort in 1617, which was held in... Holland, So, tulip was a good word for it. But those who are critical of Arminian theology have accused them of daisy theology. You know what I mean. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. You're just never sure about God's love. But that is not the God that's presented in the scripture. So, we have to come to understand just what is uh, intended by this. Term ...not blotting out his name from the book of life. And to understand that, we'll get into a lot of background on the nature of the church of Sardis... ...and the culture there in Sardis. third thing we have to analyze and understand in this verse is the reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. This reference, of course, goes back to that initial vision that John had on the Isle of Patmos of the Lord Jesus Christ... ...that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God... And the seven stars, so we have to understand what this refers to. What are the seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one the holy spirit. what are these what are the other six well we 'll find out, and the seven stars and back in revelation one of course that 's interpreted for us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Oh, wait a minute, what does that mean again now we 're back to that initial problem of figuring out who these angels are related to these churches and then the fourth thing that we have to understand in this verse is is the condemnation statement made by the lord jesus christ as he evaluates this congregation and summarizes his analysis of their spiritual life by saying i know your works that is i know the sum total of your production both good and bad That you have a name that is a reputation that you're alive. That is that you're a spiritually dynamic congregation, but the fact is you're dead. So what are the characteristics of a church that is truly alive in Christ? They're regenerate, made up of believers, but they're also dead in Christ. Come on now. It's not, it hasn't been that long this week. Let's. I know everybody's a little tired, but we're going to have fun with this. Okay, all we're going to get to today is that first point, understanding this reference to an angel. Going back, looking at that again, and don't fall asleep in Christ this morning, okay? <laughs> so this is addressed to the angel in the church of Sardis. Now, every one of these... A short evaluation statement has several sections to it, and they follow this pattern. There is an opening address, a commission statement to the angel of the church of whatever, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then there is a character reference, a citation that goes back to that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1 that relates to a specific attribute of Christ that is in some way related to the core evaluation message that's contained within each of these short epistles. Third, there is a commendation, a praise for their spiritual advance, and five of the seven letters have a commendation, but there are two that have no commendation. Fourth, there is a condemnation, And again, there are five that have a condemnation, but there are two that have no condemnation. This is a warning about a spiritual flaw that threatens the spiritual growth in advance of that congregation. Then there's a correction, a prescription to recovery. Repent, for I am coming soon. And there's a warning that's contained there. And then a call to listen and to apply the principles in the message. And then a challenge that he who overcomes will receive something that is the one who pays attention to the message the one who listens to the challenge the one who takes it into account and follows the prescription to repent that is to change their mind to uh, correct their lifestyle that uh, or their thinking whatever the area may be that there's a personal promise of reward to the overcomer so that outline fits each one of these sections. Now this is the area of Asia that we're talking about. It is located on the uh, western coast of what is modern Turkey on the western side of the Aegean. There are these seven uh, cities varying in size, all relatively close to one another, all within the Roman province of Asia. All areas that are populated by primarily Gentiles but also have Jewish populations Uh, these are areas that were probably evangelized during the time that Paul was in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey he came to Ephesus and he taught there and established a school of Tyrannus and from there he sent out missionaries throughout all of the Roman province of Asia and they had numerous converts and that probably provided the core for the founding of each one of these congregations so we've looked at and notice they go clockwise starting in the lower left hand uh, corner with Ephesus then Smyrna then Pergamum, Thyatira and now we're at Sardis Sardis is actually 55 miles northwest of Ephesus pretty close don't you think So don't get the idea these places are really all that spread out and so there's uh, radical differences uh, between them. They're very similar in their culture, but there are these trends that are being highlighted in each one of these uh, congregations. John is writing from the beautiful island of Patmos out there in the Aegean off the coast, about 50 miles, and he has been sent there, banished there by the Roman Emperor uh, Domitian during a time of persecution. And it is from what is now a resort island that he had the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. and it's from there that he wrote this uh, letter, the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. the entire book was written and sent out from this particular location, beautiful location, and it was here that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we approach Revelation 3:1, our first question is, what does "angel mean? to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Smyrna and Pergamum. Who is this angel? And the reason I address this is because there's various views that are set forth, and so we have to do some homework on this. And this is something that I've spent some time developing in the past, and I've got some of this is review, some of this is new. So just because you've heard some of this, don't... Uh, don't take a mental vacation this morning. What does angel mean in this text? Is this referring to a human messenger, which is how some people will take it, either a pastor or a simply a human messenger or envoy that, that John sends to each of these congregations? Is this the pastor-teacher, the pastor-leader of each of these congregations? Is that how this should be interpreted? That's a common Uh, interpretation as well and then the third is that is this a literal angel is he writing to a literal uh, supernatural rational creature uh, immaterial creature that is somehow related to these congregations now a lot of people have sort of shied away from this third interpretation because if you say it's an angel the next question is well, how does that fit? Why would you write it to an angel? And answering that question is one that really opens up what's going on in the Scripture. Now, as we address this, one of the things that we have to remember is a general principle of interpretation, and that is you have to go with how a word is used uh, in Scripture and not look at it, which is, I think, what has happened with a lot of Uh, commentators on the Scripture, theologians down through the ages, they couldn't quite figure out why it would be a literal angel, so they went to one of the other options. In other words, because they didn't fully understand how one option could work, which is lexically the only really possible option based on word usage, they opted for something else. And this this is one of the big problems we have as as believers. We come to Scripture, and instead of letting the Scripture define itself, our reason or our experience externally causes us to reinterpret or wrongly interpret uh, the Scripture because it doesn't make sense. Now, of course, in something like this, it's not always that confusing, but when you get with someone like... Uh, like a David Hume, for example, who was the uh, great Scottish skeptic philosopher. And he says, well, I've never seen a miracle. So when I come to the Scripture and I see these stories about Jesus healing a blind man, then, then I have to interpret that within the framework of my independent autonomous reason. And since I've never seen that or experienced that, then it really didn't happen. See, that's the, that's the most extreme case of using our reason to interpret Scripture. We have to use our reason, of course. Scripture is always logical and rational because God is a God of logic and reason. But we have to use that logic and reason within the framework of God's revelation. So let's begin. How how are angels portrayed throughout Scripture? What is the relationship of human history to the angels? First of all, we have to look at the basic uh, term that's used here. And that is, in the Hebrew, the term malach, and in (coughs) Greek, angelos. And both of these words have the same range of meanings. The first is that of a human messenger. A human messenger. For example, in Luke 9, 52, we're told that Jesus sent certain messengers out not to announce the gospel, "...or to teach the word, but they were messengers sent with a mission to secure lodging for the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on his way to Jerusalem." So we read in Luke 9:52, "...and he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him." So that's just, the, uh, in a sense, an ordinary use of the word angelos to refer to messengers." And this is used, though, very rarely in the Bible. It's only used one or two times. And another word that is, another usage that is similar to this is its use in relationship to a prophet. This is where people often make a mistake is they say, Ah, see, in this one statement over here in the Gospels, the word angeloth, is messenger, is used to refer to a prophet as a messenger, and therefore it must mean that in Revelation. For example, in Matthew 11, verse 10, we have a quote from an Old Testament passage. That's our first thing to note. It's a quote from an Old Testament passage, Malachi 3, one, where Malach is used to refer to a prophet. And in Matthew 11.10, we read, For this is he of whom it is written, that is a reference to John the Baptist, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. Now I want you to notice something in comparing these two verses. Luke 9.52 is talking about human messengers whose role is to do what? Prepare something for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 11.10 is also talking about preparation. The focus here isn't on the message of John the Baptist, but his role as preparing the nation for the arrival of the Messiah. So the word angelos is used. As a matter of fact, the word this, this quotation from Malachi 3.1 is cited also in Mark and in Luke. And this is the only time the word is used, angelos, is used to refer to a human messenger uh, that, that w- is related to giving any sort of revelation or, or making any kind of pronouncements. So what we find as we study the use of the word, which is used over 170 times in the Bible, is that only six of those are translated messengers. Three of those six are translations of this Malachi 3.1 passage. So this is a, an extremely rare use of the word angelos, where it refers in the Bible to a human messenger of any kind, much less someone who is communicating the word of God. And so when you run into folks who want to make the use in Revelation refer to a pastor teacher, uh, you have a problem. It's just not documented in word usage anywhere. Furthermore, the term is never used. I mean the Malachi 3 passage relates to an Old Testament prophet use, but the word is never ever used anywhere else in the New Testament to refer to a, a pastor teacher. Now we have to recognize and follow a couple of basic rules of interpretation. First of all, a word's meaning, must follow its normal usage unless the context provides a strong reason for doing otherwise. In other words, if you have a word that is used, uh, a hundred, hundred times it's used one way, and there's a fairly strange situation in another verse, you, and, and you don't quite see how that meaning fits, what you have to do is have a good reason contextually for giving it another definition. If the reason's not there contextually, even though it may not make, make sense to you, then you, you, the laws of language indicate that you can't just change the meaning because you're more comfortable or you can make sense out of another meaning. You have to, you have to think a little bit and see what, what that meaning might be implying. Second, just because we can't provide a complete answer for why an angel would be involved in this process doesn't mean that we should exclude the option. For example, we can't fully understand how angels can procreate with human beings, but it's clear from the language that's used in Genesis 6-3 that when the sons of God took the daughters of men, that that phrase, sons of God, always refers to angels everywhere it's used in the Old Testament. So just because I can't fully understand how that happened doesn't mean that I should look for some other uh, interpretation or some other meaning of the word. What we discover is that the angels carried out various uh, functions in the plan of God and that's what I want to focus on today is how angels are really used throughout throughout the scripture. Before we get there, I'm pointing out in this first point that the term angelos is used rarely to refer to a messenger. On one occasion, although it's quoted three times, it is um, on one occasion it's used. Trying to get a there's my arrow. On one occasion, it is used to refer to uh, a prophet. In the vast majority of usage, it refers to angels. In the book of Revelation itself, the word angelos is used 67 times. 67 times out of a total, 175 times in the whole New Testament. That means a third of the usages of angelos in the Bible are in the book of Revelation. And in all but eight of those, think of that, in all but eight of those 67, it refers to a supernatural being. Now, the eight in question are the eight that refer to these uh, angels of these seven churches there it 's mentioned once in chapter One as a summary, and then e- e- once each in each of these particular letters. so those are the eight uses that are that are in question. Yet what we discover is the other uh, fifty nine all refer to uh, supernatural being so it would fit the usage in the book to say well this obviously is referring to an angel not a human human messenger so that is where word usage leads us so let's look at some other aspects of this in the um, in in our look of how uh, the bible describes the role of angels in relationship to human beings first point angelos means a messenger its primary use is the supernatural intelligent beings that are created by God to serve him in the administration of the universe. We see that they are used in many different ways, but as we'll see in a little bit, one thing that stands out is they are used by God in the administration of blessing and judgment in, toward mankind or towards individual human beings. Uh, God is eternal. He has always existed as a triune person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There never was a time when God did not exist. But at some unknown time in eternity past, God created the angels. He created this uh, vast number of angels. They're said to be innumerable in Scripture. There's a finite number, but we don't know what that is. They're described as myriads upon myriads. There are millions and millions of angels. And after he created all of these angels, and because he is the one who directly created them, they were called the sons of God. They were his creation. That's what that phrase means in the Old Testament. He directly created all of the angels. And having created them, he then created a domain for them, and that is the universe. Job 38, 4-7, God says, Where were you when I created, when I laid the foundation of the earth? At which time, when all of the sons of God, indicating unity, no split yet, no angelic rebellion, when all of the sons of God sang for joy. So that indicates that the angels, the sons of God, were still, had been created before he laid the foundations of the earth and the universe. And that they were still united. There was no angelic rebellion at that point. It was after that at some point that there is this angelic rebellion led by the highest of the angels who is referred to historically as, as Lucifer. And we'll get to that in just a minute. He led a revolt against God, and that is what introduced sin into the universe. So at some point, second point now, first point is just talking about the use of the word angelos. The second point, at some point after the creation of the universe, Lucifer fell into arrogance. He lusted after the authority and power of God. He wanted to be thought of as God. He wanted that control. He wanted to run the universe. He said, I can do this as well as you can, and I want all of the approbation and the power. I want to be like God. And that is described for us in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 11 to 15. Now, just a side note on this, so that you are educated uh, believers and not uneducated, malleable sheep. One of the problems that we're running into in modern uh, in our in, in modern Christianity is the influence around the edges of Orthodox biblical Christianity of this that uh, uh, p- the anti-supernatural emphasis of, of liberalism, and this affects scholars uh, within our camp. This affects scholars who are within the Uh, conservative evangelical framework because we've made the mistake of of thinking that we needed to have a king like all of the other nations just as Israel did in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is that they need to have recognized degrees from Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Oxford, Tubingen, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, all of these elite schools according to the standards of, of the world. What happens is that many of these men Finish their four years with their masters of theology, then they go overseas. Well, they haven't had enough time in grade yet to really let uh, what they've studied in their ThM program sit and soak into their soul and really solidify their their thinking. And then when they go overseas, what happens is they are either knowingly or unknowingly, either either greatly or just subtly influenced by certain things that are taught from a non-biblical framework from uh, liberal Protestant uh, professors at these various schools, some of which are better than others, but most of which do not believe in a view of the Scripture that we believe, that the Word of God is infallible and inerrant. And it's easy to just unknowingly pick up certain ideas that sound good, but because you haven't had time to think it through, there are problems. And one of these things that is coming out, and has come out in the last 15 or 20 years, is that many Old Testament professors are now taking the view that neither Isaiah 14 nor Ezekiel 28 refers to Satan. That they are references to some uh, unknown, the key word, unknown Canaanite myth or ancient Near Eastern myth that is uh, being alluded to by either Isaiah or Ezekiel, and so if you look in almost any study Bible, and this is why I'm warning you about this, you look at almost any study Bible, the Thomas Nelson study Bible, which is generally pretty good except for this area, and um, the NIV study Bible, many of the other study Bibles, they will put in their study notes on those passages that this probably doesn't refer to the fall of Lucifer or the fall of Satan. I did a detailed study of this several years ago and ran across an excellent Ph.D. Dissert- dissertation that was written by a, uh, a student, at, and I think it's Andrew Seminary, I may be wrong there, but it's a Seventh-day Adventist seminary, and they have a very strong Old Testament Hebrew department, and this guy was obviously uh, well-trained in all of the ancient Near Eastern languages and demonstrated a tremendous adeptness in all of these languages, Akkadian, Ugaritic, Egyptian... And he worked his way through all them, cited all the various different myths, and he demonstrated conclusively that there's no myth that even come close to paralleling this anywhere in any ancient Near Eastern society. It just doesn't exist. And so I keep wanting to ask the question of these so-called scholars is, okay, why do you keep saying it's based on an unknown Canaanite myth? There is no known Canaanite myth that this even comes close to, so why can't you take this as a reference to Satan. It's clear, especially in Ezekiel 28, that it cannot refer to a human being. And it's, I think it's also very clear in Isaiah 14. So these passages clearly show that there is this supernatural being that preexisted the human race who wanted to be like God and wanted the approbation and the worship of the angels and led a third of the angels in rebellion. Now, the third point is that somewhere after this, God convened a trial, and he sentenced these angels who followed Lucifer to a penalty of the lake of fire. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 25, 41, where he says in describing uh, sheep and goat judgment separation, then he, at the end of this judgment, will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed. Let's talk, and these, This is a reference to human beings who have failed to trust Christ as Savior. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that w- verb translated prepared is a perfect active indicative indicating that it, it currently is in existence. It's talking about the present reality of a completed past action. In other words, the lake of fire has already been fully established and completed in the past and it currently exists. And what Jesus is saying here is that the penalty was set up the penalty was set up and the lake of fire was established but for some reason the angels and the demons were not placed into the lake of fire. So, This establishes the fact that something happened, some delay has occurred between the original guilty verdict of Satan and the angels and the final consummation of putting them in the lake of fire. That's human history because we know from Revelation that at the end of Revelation that that's when Satan and the angels are cast into the lake of fire so why is there this delay what has brought this about and it's clear from various indications in scripture that human history is directly related to this angelic rebellion that occurred in eternity past that God has created the human race in order to demonstrate through us certain aspects of his character and his ability to rule the universe that can only be learned by Experiment, And I use the term experiment not in its sense that most people think of it as, well, we're going to have this experiment and see what happens. The classic definition of an experiment is something that demonstrates a known point. And so what God is demonstrating in human history is his character, his love his justice, his righteousness, it becomes clear from observing various texts throughout Scripture dealing with Satan and with Jesus and and, uh, the virtues of the Christian life that what is at stake is, first of all, the attribute of love. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Satan apparently has challenged God's character in the sense that if you... If you really loved us, you couldn't send us to eternity in the lake of fire. I mean, the lake of fire is a pretty serious condemnation. In fact, many Christians feel a bit uncomfortable about that when they're witnessing to someone, and, they, and somebody says, Do you really believe that, that if, uh, if I don't trust Christ, I'll go to eternity in a lake of fire? I mean, that's kind of harsh, isn't it, just because I don't trust Christ? That's terrible. How could a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? So another part of this challenge that we infer from Scripture is that God's justice is being questioned. How can a just God uh, enact such a harsh penalty? And what God is demonstrating is just why this is so harsh. And I want you to think about this just a minute. The penalty fits the crime. When you look through the Scripture, this is always true, that the penalty fits the crime. So the penalty that's that is harsh must indicate that the crime of rebelling against God's authority must be extremely serious. Now, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 3, a story is familiar to all of you. Genesis chapter 3, we learn of man's rebellion against God. Now, that rebellion focused on a tree. God created a perfect environment for man, placed him in the Garden of Eden, and said, everything here is for you. I've provided everything for you. You have all the food you can eat. But there's only one thing you can't do. You can do anything else. There's no such thing as sin. Man is perfect. He's created in the image of God. But God says you can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day that you eat of it, in other words, at the moment, the instant you eat of it, you're going to die. There will be something radical that's going to happen that's going to hit you at that point. They didn't have any idea what death was, but maybe God explained it to them that there would be this separation between them and God. And it would happen at the instant that they disobeyed Him. Now, when you talk, when I talk to any audience, talk to various groups, I always say, just think in your head about the worst sins that occur to you. What are the worst sins that you think of? And people come up with all kinds of worst sins, depending on the group. You've got murder, you've got racism, you've got, golly, you've got smoking and secondhand smoke, and you've got, uh, you know, <laughs> Our culture comes up with all kinds of horrible things every, every ten years or so, and you never know what these are going to be, but everybody's got their list of the, the terrible two or the fearsome five, genocide, racism, whatever it may be. This, these things are just terrible. I mean, how could any Christian participate in that? But the sin that plunged us all into all this mess was just simply eating a piece of fruit. You know, that doesn't make anybody's list. Nobody said, hey, eating an apple or a pear or a pomegranate, that's the worst sin possible. But yet, that's the sin that plunged the human race into sin and produced violence, famine, war, disease, uh, heartache, breached relationship, all these things. Every horrible thing that we experience in human history is the result of one creature wanting to function independently of God and as innocuous an appearing act as simply eating a piece of fruit. What's God showing? He is showing that no creature can ever bring about any kind of order if they're independent from Him. Because the least act of autonomy is so serious that it completely breaches and fragments and destroys all order In the universe, even just eating a piece of fruit. And so what God has demonstrated to Satan is his desire to be independent of God is of such a nature that it has all this unexpected, unintended collateral damage. Now then, Satan, of course, became the uh, official ruler of the planet after Satan, after Adam disobeyed God Satan becomes the prince of the power of the air the god of this world the god of this age and he is the one who is in control so he wants to prove he can control things and that he can bring about peace and happiness and prosperity he wants to be like God so Satan is now engaged in this attempt to bring order to the universe to show that he can do it And as Lewis Berry Chaffer noted in his Systematic Theology many years ago, the presence of disease and war and famine and uh, all of the, and crime and all the chaos in human history is not a testimony to evil. It's a testimony to Satan's inability to control the world he is now in charge of. Isn't that a brilliant insight? that, that all, Satan wants to produce peace and happiness and prosperity, but poverty and war and disease and famine are, are, are the result of all these human beings running around doing the same thing Satan did. I want to be like God. You want to be like God. You want to be like God. We all want to be like God, and the result is we're all trying to be like God, and there's such a, a fragmentation throughout history that it has brought all of this chaos and disorder So God is demonstrating in each generation, in each dispensation, in each age, where he gives different uh, amounts of revelation, different amounts of empowerment, uh, different amounts of guidance, that no matter how little or how much guidance, revelation, power that God gives to the human race, no matter what he does to help us, that unless there is full, total obedience to him, it all falls apart. And in every dispensation, it, the dispensation ends in chaos. No dispensation has ever ended on the ascendancy. It always ends in human failure. And so God is demonstrating through this experiment of the human race that no creature can ever find peace, prosperity, and happiness apart from, apart from total dependence upon him. So it is, as it were, a, a trial. You go to trial and lawyers come forward and they present evidence, they present the the data, they present case studies in order to demonstrate their point. And that's what God is doing in history. So the angels are involved, as it were, as witnesses in this uh, enormous trial that god has set forth in human history so we can think by analogy that human history is on the order of a trial where you have lawyers coming together and presenting a case now think about this in the scripture you have all kinds of different words that are used that emphasize this judicial nature think about the fact that you've got righteousness that's man's basic problem is he lacks righteousness And you have a problem because man doesn't live up to God's justice. So in order for man to have salvation, there has to be the imputation or crediting of Christ's righteousness to the unbeliever. Well, that very act of imputation or crediting one thing to someone else is a legal concept. It's a forensic concept, which is why theologians refer to justification as forensic justification, just like you all watch CSI and NCIS and all those all those television shows like that that talk about forensic medicine that's medicine related to court cases and judicial cases theologians talk about forensic justification it's all set within this context of legal terminology Satan's referred to as Shatan because he is a, a prosecutor Jesus Christ is our what? He is our advocate. He is the one who stands in our place. He's our defense attorney. You see all these legal images and courtroom images used uh, throughout Scripture. And so what God is demonstrating is uh, in a courtroom kind of setting, his, he's validating his character and his, uh, the fact that only he can rule the universe and Satan cannot. So Satan has come along. I mean, so we look at this whole chart here. This is the timeline at the bottom. This is uh, human history. And the angelic rebellion began at some time in eternity past and extends up to the end of the millennium. And that's when Satan and the fallen angels will finally be cast into the lake of fire. So Lucifer's fall occurs sometime in eternity past. And then there's a trial. And then there's a period of angelic observation and sort of an appeal trial of Satan where Satan is appealing the verdict and God is demonstrating his own uh, justice and veracity. And the end result is that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So it's in this overall judicial context that we come to understand how angels are used by God in human history now Satan has challenged God's authority to rule the universe and he has challenged God's sovereignty second he has challenged God's love questioning how God, how a loving God can send his creatures into the lake of fire he has challenged God's justice his fairness that he is not going to be fair to his creatures and hasn't given him an opportunity to show what he can do so God is giving him That opportunity. Now let's think about this in terms of character. Satan is operating on the basis of arrogance. He's operating on the principle that uh, self-promotion is the way to advancement. You know, all of these are character attributes that are are in counterpoint to what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wants to be God. Jesus Christ is God, but he doesn't count it something to be grasped after, according to Philippians uh, chapter two. Uh, Satan thinks that uh, leadership has to do with lording it over uh, the other creatures whereas Jesus Christ said that he who would be first should be last that the key to leadership is being a good servant of others and so you see point and counterpoint here that Jesus is demonstrating uh, the character of God that that is the only way to success and happiness and finding meaning in life and Satan is uh, providing just the opposite I'm going to go on to say that within this appeal trial concept, we see the certain legal notions brought forward, one of which is this concept of being a witness, a witness. For example, in John chapter 1, this man, referring to John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness of the light. This is a Greek word. The verb is martyreo, uh, the, the noun martyros, For Well, witness, these are terms that were used in the courtroom just as we use them today. John 3.11, uh, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. This is legal terminology. 1 Corinthians 4.9, we go on to see that the angels are witnesses of this, and they're observing human actions. Paul says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last as men condemned to death. For we have not been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels... For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. In other words, we are a visual evidence for the angels. They're watching us. They're learning things for us. This is what uh, Peter says in First uh, Peter one twelve. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us... They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Last phrase, things which angels desire to look into, or I think New American Standard translates it, things which angels long to look into. They learn things from us that they don't learn from anyone else. Uh, Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, "...to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known..." By the church to whom? To the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So the angels are learning things about us that they can't learn and won't learn any other way. Now that's interesting because that tells us some things about, about angels and learning and, and perhaps indicates some things of their nature prior to the angelic fall. But it makes it clear to us that angels are watching us. We are a test case. As it were. Now, next point, uh, let me back up a minute in case you got lost there. Point number, just a quick review. Point number uh, two was that at some point in the universe, Lucifer fell into arrogance. Point number three, after an indeterminate period of time, God convened a trial. Then I just kind of went off on that. Point number four, the sentence has been postponed. Point number five, the issues are related to God's character, his love, justice, and righteousness. And uh, that's point number five, related to God's character. This is point number six human history provides evidence in a legal court of appeal which establishes Satan's guilt, Adam's guilt, and God's integrity. Okay. Point number seven, angels observe human actions. 1 Corinthians 4:9, 1 Peter 1:12, and 1 Timothy 5:21, and point number eight: angels observe as confirming witnesses to the giving of divine covenants. What do you have to do every time you enter into a contract? You have to have a witness. You get married, You've got to have a witness. Witnesses are uh, give testimony to the or, or a validation to the giving of a covenant. So you have the same thing happen with angels. For example, Galatians 3.19 tells us that when the law was given, it was ordained or given through, through angels by the agency of a mediator. Paul says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, the key thing I'm focusing on in this verse is that it was ordained through the angels. But if you go back to Exodus uh, 14 through 20, you don't see any evidence of angels on Mount Sinai. So it's not until the New Testament that we learn that angels were present as what? As confirmatory witnesses to this, the giving of this uh, legal uh, document. They were given through this legal document. And the word that is used here, having been ordained through the angels, is the Greek word diatasso. And diatasso, which is used 16 times in the New Testament, has the idea of putting things in a proper order or arrangement. It means to give detailed instructions as to what must be done or uh, what must be done in the proper order. And in the Liddell Scott Jones lexicon says that it has the idea of making testamentary dispositions. Isn't that a fancy legal term almost? It means that you're just a witness to a legal document. That that's part of what diatesso means, is to be a witness to a legal document. So when we read that in... Uh, Galatians 3.19 that having been ordained through angels it means that the angels were witnesses to the giving of the law it is a, operating in a legal function as you'd find in any kind of uh, courtroom situation and this same word or a form of diatesso is used again in Acts 7.53 uh, who have received the law referring to the Jews who received the law by the direction of angels and that word translated direction is this word diatage it's a noun form by the direction of angels, and they have not kept it. And it has the same idea that they were witnesses, of legal witnesses of that uh, action. Furthermore, Hebrews 2.2 says, If the word spoken through angels, referring to the Old Testament, if the message spoken through angels proves steadfast. Again, angels were involved in the giving of revelation. And witnesses, Deuteronomy 3.21 Moses said, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And heavens is used as an allusion to the angels who inhabit the heavens. And he would call upon the heavens, that is, the inhabitants of the heavens, and the earth, that is, the inhabitants of the earth, in order to be witnesses to what? To the covenant. That's what Deuteronomy was. It was a reiteration of the Mosaic law. So we see this again and again in the Scriptures, that the angels have this function of being witnesses to the actions on the earth. Deuteronomy four twenty six, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. Now all of this sets things up. So how do we see angels in the Bible? I'll just think through this with me a little bit. Think with me from Genesis to Revelation of how God uses angels in the Bible. First place we see angels mentioned is where? Revelation chapter I mean Genesis chapter three. Cherubs. After the fall, God sets these cherubs, many cherubs, not just one, not just two, but he reigns Eden with the, this cherub army that have flaming swords to keep people away. Now, throughout the scripture, swords are used as an emblem of, of power over life and death. They are used uh, by God to exercise judicial activity. They are executioners if anybody tries to get into the Garden of Eden. The second time we see angels mentioned is in Genesis 17 or Genesis 19 when the angels, two angels come with, with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ to visit Abraham, and then they go to Sodom and Gomorrah. What do they do at Sodom and Gomorrah? They execute judgment. They destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The next time we see them in Genesis is on Jacob's ladder, and we studied that in Genesis a few weeks ago, and that was a, a picture of... Of angels descending and ascending on the, on, Jacob, on this, literally, it's a staircase, a uh, staircase to heaven, and, and they're coming down. It's a picture of angels being used by God in the distribution of blessing related to the Abrahamic uh, covenant. Now, these covenants are legal documents, and they involve witnesses, so the angels are involved with witnesses there. For example, Galatians 3, uh, 19, and Deuteronomy 32, 1, which we've seen already. Uh, so we have angels again at Mount Sinai. We have angels called upon by Moses to be witnesses of this uh, legal document. We have uh, angels giving judgment again. The next time we really see angels appear is in Second Samuel 24 and the parallel passage in First Chronicles 21 where we read about the fact that an angel was sent by God to bring judgment on the Jews because David disobeyed God and he numbered the people. And it's an angel that brings this plague upon the people. Then we get into uh, Daniel. In Daniel 4, uh, Daniel has a vision, and he talks about these watchers, they're holy ones. They're watchers. Notice they're observers, they're watching human history. He says, I saw in the vision of my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Uh, Daniel 4.17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers. Now, there's an interesting phrase with lots of implications. Human history is being watched and even, in some sense, is guided by these angels. A decree of the watchers. These angels are directly involved in human history. Uh, Daniel 4.23 mentions the watchers Again, so we have this angelic involvement here. And then in the New Testament, in Acts 12.23, Herod Agrippa got a little proud of himself, and people started uh, worshiping him as God. And so uh, he was immediately struck by an angel of the Lord. That's not the angel of the Lord, the Old Testament pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is an angel sent by the Lord uh, who, who executes him, and he's immediate, he immediately dies a horrible death in front of everybody. So what do we see in all of this? Is that the pattern throughout the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that angels are used as witnesses. They're used as witnesses of legal documents and they're used in the framework of executing judgment and blessing on on human beings in general and on believers in specific. Now what we're going to see when we finish this is that's the same thing that we see in Revelation. Is that in all these... 59 other uses of angels in Revelation. How are they used? What's their function in the book of Revelation? Their 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 function is to uh, deliver God's judgments on mankind. They are witnesses of God's judicial enactments on the human race. Now, what exactly are these seven letters to the seven churches? They are judicial evaluations of these churches. So, it if we take angels here as literal angels, then and these are <coughs> judicial documents evaluating the spiritual life of these congregations, then what we learn is that there is an angelic counterpart in the in this uh, trial setting. There's an angelic counterpart to each congregation that is keeping a record. They're like the court reporter. They're angelic court reporters or angelic court officers who are responsible for observing local congregations to write up evaluation reports and these evaluation reports are then utilized at the judgment seat of Christ in the future so once we take this term, understand it literally as true angels then we explore what the scripture says about the role of angels, it makes perfect sense to understand these as angels who are Keeping a record that goes into the uh, heavenly court documents on each congregation, this sort of gives you a new perspective of what 's going on in our lives that there 's evaluation going on. we are being observed day in and day out by the angels and they're watching each congregation and they and they are going to be reporting. This information in relationship to Satan's charges against God. And, of course, ultimately it all is going to vindicate the character of God because he is going to deal with us in grace and in love, just as he did in salvation because he sent his son to die on the cross for us that we might have eternal life, not based upon who we are, what we do, but based on who he is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty our sins so this judgment evaluation from God why there is a while there is accountability God also deals with us in grace he has given us salvation he's given us the holy Spirit who is the one who enables us but it's up to our volition as to what we're going to do with the assets that God has provided for us as individuals and as a congregation in the church age let's bow our heads together and close in prayer Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to look at how our role as a local congregation fits within the overall flow of history from Genesis to Revelation and how our individual spiritual lives as well as the life of this church fit within the evidentiary framework to demonstrate within the overall uh, trial of Satan to demonstrate your love, your righteousness, and your justice. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All that is required is for you to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you will have eternal life. This life can never be taken from you. It is yours throughout all of eternity. You become a new creature in Christ. You are uh, justified. You're made righteous. You are... Redeemed. All of this is true. And for it to be applied to you simply means that you trust, rely upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Right now, right where you sit, you can make that decision. You don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle, or do anything else, even utter a prayer. The instant you put your faith in Christ, God the Father knows what you're trusting in. And at that instant, you receive eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge every believer here with the uh, message this morning, with the doctrines related to the angelic conflict, that we, we might be encouraged, motivated to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.